I'm Lara Barrera, and welcome to the 16th episode of the No-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Developing an Efficient Fertility System for High No-Till Yields and Profitability, is being brought to you by Montag Manufacturing. If this is your first time joining us, I encourage you to subscribe to this podcast currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to get an alert when upcoming episodes are released. If you have another app you use for listening to podcasts, let us know and we'll make an effort to get it listed there as well. Thanks to Montag Manufacturing, your fertilizing equipment specialist, for sponsoring today's episode. Offering complete dry and liquid fertilizer systems, Montag will help you reap the benefits of deep banding fertilizer which can reduce your rates, increase your yields, and assist your stewardship goals. They also offer high-capacity auto-steer carts that help keep soil compaction under control by precisely following in the tracks of any implement. To learn more about their fertilizer solutions, visit www.montagmfg.com or call them today at 712-852-4572. Jim Leverage has five management practices he says are key to achieving high yields in his no-till system, and two of them involve fertility. In this presentation from the 2017 National No-Tillage Conference, Jim, a no-tiller and on-farm research coordinator for the University of Wisconsin, talked about things no-tillers should consider when creating an effective nutrient management program for their operation, including soil testing, on-farm research, choosing a fertilizer source, and application methods. In today's No-Till Farmer podcast, brought to you by Montag Manufacturing, we welcome Jim to discuss how he's developed an efficient fertility system for his no-till operation and what he recommends other no-tillers do to build their own. Okay, I'm going to spend quite a bit of time on fertility as I go through, but I want to hit a few points here of things that I think are really important to uh, consider as you're moving forward um, about no-tilling and how it can impact your farm. I started back in 1984 no-tilling when I came back from uh, graduate school. My dad was a real conservationist and had done a little bit of no-till, but not a lot. And this is just a picture of our farm. and just to show you that this uh, corn crop here in the bottom of the picture is actually on a one and a half percent organic matter soil and the stuff that's in the bigger flats there is is in uh, something that's two and a half three percent organic matter so our farm is very diverse and now in the last couple of years we've picked up acreages that are in the five percent organic matter so we farm everything from uh, really heavy good soils to uh, more challenging soils and when I started out farming, um, we had a lot more of those challenging soils, so we had to do things that would save our water and save our soil. And so thinking back, you know, the old natu- National uh, nat- Natural Resources Conservation Service is named that today, but in the old days it was named the Soil and Water Conservation Service. So remember, the water is just as important as the soil in saving that. So some of the things that I you know, always have goals in mind or um, things that you have to think about when you're going to no-till or do any kind of farming is that there's certain things that make it successful and certain things that 
can cause you to have a failure. As those first two speakers today were talking about, it's all about getting that seed in the ground and started. Doesn't really matter uh, so much what the uh, soil moisture is and the temperature and all that stuff. We hear all that stuff over time, but if you can get that seed in the ground and get it established and get it growing and get some nutrients near it, it's really going to take off. You got to think about how you're going to get that fertilizer to last. So I'm not going to be up here today telling you what rate you should put on. It's really dependent if we walk your farm on all these other factors that are when is that fertilizer going to be released and used by your crop and how can it access that fertilizer. Okay, hybrid and variety section selection are extremely important to you. You really have to have, um, you really have to be picking the hybrids that are going to make you the money. So every year I spend a considerable amount of time planting plots to get the right hybrids and varieties that perform the best on my farm. Road spacing and population, I've done a lot of work with that. Marion Calmer sitting up here years ago, we went around to all the universities and to some of the uh, seed companies and we tried to get them to look at different types of row spacings and populations. But a lot of them are kind of ingrained in the uh, old research plot methodology. So the neat thing that we have today is we need to collaborate with our universities and with our companies and our farmers. That's what all these on-farm type things that we do so that we learn from each other and we learn the most when we, when we get out of our element and work together on that. So what we found is that in the early row spacing stuff, these guys had planters that weren't designed to plant narrow row corn. They were driving on all the corn. So I always challenged them, okay, if you're gonna plant your 30 inch corn, use a Kinsey planter and use the inner plants and plant your corn with those and drive on all the corn and see how good a result you get. Okay, so you get, I used to, as a young scientist, when I, when I came out of graduate school, you know, I'd always read the results of any research study. And that was important, but then I forgot that the most important part was the materials and methods. You, you know, most people jump to the results, but the most important thing is figure out what they were doing to get those results. So you can learn that on your farm. So that's what on-farm research is all about, figuring out what you're doing and how it comes to a result on your farm. Okay, precision farming, you're all using that stuff and it's really important. It gives you some tools, yield monitoring was the first thing <laughs> and you can measure your yields and your hybrids. You can do all kinds of on-farm testing now. So I came from a dairy background. Many of you probably did. The DHI program, the Dairy Herd Improvement, was the biggest field study that the university system ever developed. And I'm frankly surprised that the USDA has not jumped on precision farming and gathered all this data in a non-biased way so that we would have a program like the DHI program that would record the yields and the inputs of every acre that's planted in this country. But it hasn't happened yet. Now, I don't know if it ever will. Companies are doing it. They're, they're grabbing your data. It's your, your intellectual data. They're storing it away. But there's a huge opportunity for us to share all this data in a non-biased way, but we're not doing it yet. Okay, variable rate application, I'll talk a little bit about that. And guidance, guidance to me is the biggest residue management tool you have available to you. Okay, so here's a field where residue is, you know, it's really an issue. It's a, it's a great thing though. Everybody comes up and they says that residue is terrible. I think residue is my best 
friend. It saves the soil. It provides a way to build terraces in the field. So I don't, I don't grind my residue down like this anymore. I try to pick the corn as high as I can. So residue is really uh, integral to your fertility system because it can tie up nutrients, which is, is that good or bad? It can be good too, because it's holding those nutrients for later. <coughs> okay, so you really gotta think about what are you trying to accomplish when you run that corn planter through the field to plant that crop? Do you wanna be competing with this? Or do you want to have controlled traffic with your GPS so you know where you planted last year and you can come in and your planter can run in an area where it's not competing with all the crowns? Or it's also running in an area that's near the fertilizer that you put there. So one of the best investments I ever made was going from to a non, uh, I went to RTK and spent another 4,000 bucks and another 500 bucks a year for subscription so that now I can control where the planter goes. Of course, in the contours, that's a challenge, but there's still a nudge button. So if you are perceptive of what you're doing in the planter, you can still work with that. Okay, you see everybody talking about row cleaners. That's the first style I used, okay? And I used it with a coulter because I had a planter that had the 15 degree opener, and it was necessary to help that planter through the soil without beating it up to run a very narrow, Coulter and a row cleaner. So then when I moved to 20 inch rows, it became a real challenge to move residue to get it out of the way so I could apply fertilizer and so that I could get a good stand. Well, this was an excellent row cleaner on my Kinsey planter. It's the only row cleaner I could put on my front fold because it wouldn't fit with the frame. And this was the old style Kinsey or uh, Yetter cleaner. I had two planters in the field running the same day, and this sucker would never plug up. This one would. So I think part of it was it's not necessarily the manufacturer, it was the style of the coulter. This coulter cut the trash before it was going through the planter, and so there was nothing to hold on to that trash when the row cleaner wanted to move it out of the way. So you could go through anything with this other style, and this one you couldn't. So Simple thing like that, but it made huge differences in the performance of my system because I couldn't move the trash. And I spent all day out there cleaning up my piles of trash and my, my landlord was running the old planter and he's going right through anything. Okay, now that we've moved to a, a newer case planter, we haven't been using the coulter, so we've gone to these uh, shark tooth row cleaners and we didn't have any mechanism except to pin them to control their depth so we had them floating the first year, and I would never recommend that. I like to have control of the row cleaner. So now we have the air system on there, which I've only used one year, but in the first year I used it, it seemed to work well. So I can't tell you a definitive answer, but it seemed to work well for me. And part of the reason you want that row cleaner is something like the guy just said this morning in the other talk, he, Ray McCormick is putting his fertilizer on the surface. And instead of using a, a, a coulter that will put the fertilizer in the ground. There's a lot of research out of Minnesota um, that's been done by Dr. Kaiser, who's the recent scientist, and then a, an older gentleman that was there that did a lot of that research with Jeff Vetch. Uh, if, if you're interested in starter fertilizer, look up Jeff Vetch, University of Minnesota Southeast Regional uh, uh, Research Station. He has lots of good information on all kinds of different starter combinations, which I'll show you a little bit later. 
Okay, so our goal now today when we're planting is that we're using uh, GPS to plant right down the middle of where we were. Those corn stalks there, uh, they're another tool that I just bought at the local farm. They are my elevator. They pull all that trash through that corn planter. Okay, so those corn stalks that are standing, the ones that are on, that are ground up and put on the ground, so I pick as high as I can, those I want chopped up fairly fine so that they're easy to move, but those corn stalks are my elevator. And you think about that, that's a way to pull all that trash through your corn planter. Another thing is with a corn planter, always buy too big a corn planter. Okay, not because of the weight, you want to make sure it's balanced well and that it's a planter that will uh, is not going to cause compaction, but you want a planter that you can go out there when you should be planting corn. You can't plant in those kind of stalks in an early heavy dew or late in the evening. You need to manage your planting time so that the planter is not uh, plugging up and not, uh, you want the planter to work right. So think about that when you purchase your planter. You also think about, okay, that's a huge investment, but it really isn't because you, you can get so many more acres done with less hours on your tractor, less hours on your planter. It's a lifetime investment to buy a good planter and outfit it. So it's really not as expensive as you might think it is. Okay, but when you get to these bigger planters, then you gotta start building your own stuff. So this tank system we put on this planter, uh, really, I don't understand why, but planting companies have not done a very good job of outfitting planters with fertilizer systems. They really haven't. They, they're still back 50 years ago. So you see a new planter like this morning that Ray had that's addressing that, but really we've, we're starting to get to that, but we really haven't addressed it well. And it's probably because most farmers aren't no-tilling, and so they're not seeing the benefit to, to fertilizer, uh, starter fertilizer. Or maybe they just haven't realized the benefits because they're not doing a good enough job of farming to get the benefit out of them. It's a weak chain, weak link in the chain. Okay, so there's a picture of the stalk still standing in between the soybeans. And there's the stand we got because we cleaned the soil, the residue appropriately to get a good soil to seed contact. The other reason that I want that planter to have a good row cleaner, and this is a concern in 20 inch rows, is that I want those gauge wheels to be running on a non-bumpy surface. I want that gauge wheel so that planter is never bouncing. I had Daryl come out one year we, before we did a story, and we intentionally planted right down the row on the crowns, even with the row cleaner, versus next to it. So the row cleaner is ripping out the, all the, uh, the uh, soil root balls. So now what do you have? You got these big divots in the ground that aren't filled in with soil, and you're trying to plant into that because you ripped the root ball out. So you got a great row cleaner. It cleans everything out, including all the roots and now you can't get a good surface to plant in. So really think about what you're trying to accomplish and how precision ag can help you. So you want a nice even stand with even years. Probably didn't plant that field heavy enough that I got complete tip fill on that corn, but um, that's another issue. D everything that I do on my farm is like these last two farmers that talked to, talk to you this morning. Every field has got some kind of research activity going on in it, okay? so that I can assess populations, nitrogen rates, uh, different hybrids. So I put these hybrids in my plot, but I also test them within fields by having uh, multiple hybrids, okay? And then I learn more about the soil type and, and the soil productivity across the farm. 
this is just an example showing a yield map. And so on my farm, there's a, there's a red strip in here. This whole farm was, uh, had uh, 100 pounds of ammonium sulfate, 100 pounds of potash broadcast, about 135 pounds anhydrous, except for the, where that red strip was. And there we put on about 80 pounds anhydrous and then we came back with 28% when the corn was about 10 inches high. So on my farm in that particular year, this is just an example and I've done this several times, my pre-plant anhydrous always out yields my side dressing. But there's a couple important things with the pre-plant anhydrous. I have to make sure I have adequate nitrogen near the seed Otherwise, that anhydrous is so stable in a 40-inch band, there's so much concentration, it's slowing down the microbial activity to break that anhydrous down to a, to a mobile form that the crop was deficient of nitrogen if I hadn't put some other source just besides that 100 pounds of AMS. So I've gone to a liquid system, which I'll show you. Okay, the other thing is that yield monitor is showing you yields. And, and you got to remember that that yield right there is not exact because as the combine's going up and down these hills or around corners and, and through different soil areas, depending on how fast you push the hydro, those kinds of things, that shoe is not going to have the same amount of grain in it all the time. So you're not going to get a true reading if you're really trying to use variable rate technology on what the grain flow is in a particular area. Because I'll have fields where that grain flow, where there's sandy knobs, where that grain production could be 50, 60 bushels different than it is in another area. Okay, and so it's important to delineate that. So now you've got a lot of other tools to do that. You've got the infrared imaging and the drone technology and a good soil sampling. So. Yield maps to me are important, but I don't like to work off of the 10-year average yield map. That doesn't tell me anything. It's just an average. I want to look at specifically what's happening to that field over time. Okay, so here's just an example. I did it in 2007, so I don't get in trouble with any companies. But these are all the hybrids that I had planted that year in a replicated plot. So I replicate all my studies across 1,200 acre feet uh, replication and then I also now with the technology we have today I can split out the yield maps by soil type and look at how these particular hybrids tested across the field so most university studies or controlled studies are all about no variation in a field well on your farms you can create all kinds of variation as long as you control it in other words, if you know where the differences are in your field as you go across it in the productivity or soil type, and with today's data capture, you can split that out and learn from it. So you, can be, you, could, have, you could have these corns planted across three soil types in the same field, and you can learn about how those corn hybrids respond to those three soil types or soil productivity range. Okay? You don't have to do a standard trial like they used to. Okay, so now let's get to the fertility system. So normally, you know, most people would think that your soil type and texture, your soil sampling points, those are all important. Uh, that's a real important thing that we'll talk about, how you can take information and put it together 
to determine what the nutrient level of your soil is and how much capacity it has to grow a crop. But then you have to stop, start talking about the fertility needs and the use of those nutrients. When are they being harvested in your field? Okay, what is Mother Nature doing to that as far as her adding water to your fields? And then you have to think about how you're gonna time and place those nutrients and how you can use the new technologies to help you do that, okay? So first thing that happens when you get a planter home is you have to build some equipment to put on it so, so that you can actually uh, get the job done that you wanna do. So here's your plant. So with no-till farming, you have a colder environment. Plant will, the crop will grow, but the soil microbes are not as active and the opportunity for stuff to go from a uh, chemical form into a soil nutrient that's absorbable by your crop is, is not near as uh, widely available in a no-till system as it is if you're out there tilling it up and changing the temperature of the soil way earlier. So what you're trying to do is you need to feed with some sort of possibly a pop-up and also some sort of fertilizer near the seed. The old two-by-two two system was what was the most common. Here's an old study put out by the Leopold uh, Center, which basically showed us way back when that no-till, it, it, it performed just as well as these other tillage methods as long as you had a broadcast and, a, and a, uh, some sort of uh, placement of fertilizer near the seed, okay? Whereas the other systems didn't necessarily need that, but way back when, when all these guys were starting, they still had the same uh, conclusion that we do today, that we have to have a broadcast plus a planter band to uh, get the best performance out of no-till. We'll rejoin Jim in a minute, but I wanted to take a moment to again thank Montag Manufacturing, your fertilizing equipment specialist, for sponsoring today's episode. Did you know that many universities have found you can reduce the amount of phosphorus and potassium you apply by up to a third if you ban your fertilizer versus broadcasting it? Recent studies have also shown that banning phosphorus and potassium can increase yield. In fact, University of Illinois plant pathologist Fred Below found that banding phosphorus resulted in a corn yield increase of 14 bushels per acre. And banding fertilizer also helps prevent nutrient loss to the environment. To learn how you can start deep banding your fertilizer, visit Montag Manufacturing at www.montagmfg.com or give them a call at 712-852-4572. We've heard Jim talk about the importance of getting your planter set up properly and how that setup can change based on your system and what you're trying to achieve. If you're new to no-till and trying to determine the best setup for your operation, Bill Lemcole, owner of Precision Agri-Services and no-till planter expert from Minster, Ohio, is going to host an exclusive workshop at the 2018 National No-Tillage Conference in Louisville. This workshop, focused solely for those who are new to no-till, will provide valuable tips and techniques on no-till attachments, frame and hitch adjustments, seed tubes, meter calibration, and much more. This exclusive workshop will take place before the conference on Tuesday, January 9th from 2 to 4 p.m. Space is limited to 50 attendees and costs an additional $75. For more information or to register, visit notillconference.com.
Now let's get back to Jim, who's going to talk about soil sampling and how it will impact your fertility program. Okay, so some of the chemical and physical characteristics of your soil are the foundation for the productivity of that soil. So the organic matter, the water holding capacity, um, the structure, the sand, silt, and clay, you know, how does that impact the way you farm that soil? It's a little different in every case, but actually after doing no-till for 35 years, it's about, once you get that soil neutralized and in a no-till program, it's amazing what it'll do. And, you know, I really don't think there's a yield drag associated with no-till. A lot of people will tell you that, but I think that's just management drag. If you can get into a field and you work with a good no-tiller that knows what he's doing, you are not going to have any yield drag. You are going to have the opportunity to have yields that are more excessive than were there in the past system. So the soil life thing, it's really important. It grows and it helps to enhance you, but I just think that you, you become better farmers um, because of the soil biology and those things that are all working in your favor. Okay. So the physical attributes, the texture, the slope, the water holding capacity, to me it's all about water. I think the whole, whole thing is about saving that water. If you have excessive water in a field, then you need to tile. But, if, but if, if you, you need to save water for that crop to use at certain times of the year, okay? And then you need to start thinking, some of our latest research at the university where we've been looking at nitrogen, variable rate nitrogen studies is, we're starting to do three-dimensional soil testing. So um, we, we have a machine that goes out with a sonar and it's like conductivity and sonar and we use those two methodologies to help us to figure out what areas of the field may or may not be common with each other so that we can afford to uh, do more sampling intensively. So if you might think of, if you guys were each an acre out here the first time I got on this field with you, I'd want to sample every one of you. I'd want to know exactly what I've got out here one time. Once I know that five of you are the same and 10 of you over there are the same and 15 over here pretty much have the soil, same soil attributes, then I can take you five and instead of taking five samples there, I can take three samples at different depths. And I can start to learn about what's happening with those nutrients. You're not just farming the top six inches. And in fact, maybe our regulations today are all built off these six inch layers. So we need to get our regulators to start thinking about, uh, do we really have a soil phosphorus problem in the top six inches or where's that phosphorus going? And the only way we're gonna know that is if we start to sample deeper over a period of time to start to understand where our nutrients are moving. So, this talk is not giving you specifics, it's trying to open your mind about thinking how you can address your fertility system differently, just like the early no-tillers. There's still a bunch of people out there who think we're nuts, that we're no-tilling, but good luck with staying in farming over the time. So, so you could use grid or, soil, grid or zone soil sampling, but like I said, I prefer to go into a field, sample the heck out of it the first time, so I know what I've got. Now I can use that information to determine where I should sample the next go around, okay? And you can use your soil type, topography. Those types of maps are all good 
But a lot of those soil maps were built years ago, 50 years ago, and so we don't have good delineation of where those soil zones are changing. So if we use the information we have through the other mapping types of services we have today, we can start to better delineate these areas in the field. Okay, yield maps, infrared imaging, water holding capacity, where that could be used. Um, we did a lot of work with irrigating manure products on one of my studies, and we've gotten these uh, little sensors you can put down in the soil. And so I, that'll be one of the next things I'll do on our farm is to start installing those on my different soil types in my different um, farms that have, so I can use those as a monitor to figure out what happened last year to my soil moistures through the summer compared to over a period of time, and I can learn how my fertility system is being affected by that. So I guess that's probably why John Deere bought onto that, and you know, and they have soil, they have these soil stations or weather stations in the fields. So this is the, uh, the type of soil probe that these guys are using. And they charge quite a bit, about 10 bucks an acre to come out. Uh, well, I should say more than, it, it's probably about 10 bucks an acre when you average it out. They only sample maybe every five, 10 acres. But then they'll do an intensive sampling of your soil and tell you where your texture levels are. First time I saw this kind of stuff being done was out in Kansas, actually. There's a group of Kansas on-farm researchers out there that have been doing this kind of stuff for years. They take out soil probes and they um, they weren't so much testing all the soil, they were just looking at the structure and the texture of the soil uh, where they were looking at. Okay, now here's a slide I produced a while back that showed why it was important to grid sample versus sampling the old method. So this is a two acre grid sample versus a 7.7 or roughly eight acres of sample. And if you can see, the average potassium on this soil test were about the same, but the standard deviation and the, the total variation was quite a bit different. And the actual fertility requirements for that field, the amount of potash that was put on there, was almost exactly equal. Okay, But then if you took and you broke them down here and looked at the samples in the high, low, in Wisconsin they would say that if you're at optimum, you, you, you don't need, if you're above optimum or high, you don't need to add any fertilizer. So when we got into these eight, $900 potash times, they would have recommended that you didn't put any fertilizer on because there was no uh, need for it because 70% uh, of the samples were high. But then if you grid sampled it, you'd find that almost 50% of the field needed fertilizer. You never would have known that if you'd used the old sampling system. So soil sampling is cheap relative to the cost of inputs and the uh, potential for losing yield over time. Another picture here, this shows um, the soil sampling levels of K and the, uh, obviously the uh, prescription matches that, but the yield map doesn't match that at all. So that's an important concept to remember that the yield map, if you drive your fertility recommendations off the yield map, you're going to be way off because over time, it's going to, when you keep putting on the same amount of fertilizer all the time and you're not pulling off the same amount of yield across this field that you prescribed a fixed rate, 
you're just going to end up building areas of the field that don't need building and you're going to short areas of the field that need more fertilizer. Okay, so here's an example of a fertility system that we put together of how much fertilizer to put on. So we were using 100 pounds of potash in corn along with ammonium sulfate because we weren't applying any potash with a Normally, you'd say in a no-till system, you'd like to apply potash two by two. And with the older dry fertilizer systems and now the liquid, you can do that, but it kind of gets expensive. So what we do to offset that is we raise the potash level in the soil to 125 to 150 parts per million, where the recommendation in our state would generally be 125 uh, parts per million. So we, we elevate the potash level to the point that it's more available and we broadcast potash. So that's something I'm going to be experimenting more with in the future is adding potash to the two by zero placement of fertilizer. Okay, but anyhow, you can see the rate of potash that we're putting on um, relative to the, the uh, parts per million. Okay, the parts per million if we're way up. We also, even at a real high parts per million, you need to think of your fertility program is a risk. Everything you do in farming is risky. So even though the potash is really high on some of my soils, I'll still feed some potash to the crop because I'm afraid that in those colder, wetter soils that that potash isn't going to be released quite as fast. So I don't take, if I have plenty of potash out there, I still feed the crop a little potash and I try to draw my soil test down slower than all at one time because I don't want the risk of not having that nutrient available enough for that no-till crop. Okay, you don't have to necessarily, uh, if, if variable rate technology is too expensive for you and, and the, you don't feel that you can afford to pay for it at the co-op to have them come in and do the, the spreading, then if you already have a yield monitor, which I had an ag leader, I went out and bought a $1,000 dry spreading module and, and then I went and bought a $300 hydraulic motor and then I purchased a $500 Raven flow control valve. And so for 2000 bucks, I was set up to put on variable rate technology. So I just run the, run the prescriptions through the SMS software, put the prescriptions in and now I'm off spreading variable rate, okay? So sometimes I, I put my potash on in the spring because uh, potash is fairly soluble and a lot of people put it on in the fall, but it depends where you live and your climate. Um, I'm afraid I'm gonna lose too much uh, ammonium sulfate if I put it on in the, in the fall. So I put it on in the spring with my potash. So again, think about when you put that fertilizer on, where it's gonna be when the crop needs it and what you can do about that. So again, that I'll talk a little bit now about the fertility system I'm using. So basically I'm going out there and I'm oversampling a field and then I'm creating these zones and then I'm doing a little bit more uh, six inch and then six to 12 inch sampling. And then what I'm doing is I'm setting up my fertilizer requirements for P and K to variable rate those on. And so my first pass in the spring is to go out and variable rate on my, my uh, potash on my soybean fields and then on my corn fields I'm putting on 
potash and ammonium sulfate as a, as a uh, starter. And then, when I, then I go out with my uh, GPS and RTK and I apply anhydrous ammonia and I apply that in 40 inch bands and I plant 20 inch uh, rows around it. That's so that I've concentrated my nitrogen source so it will last longer. I'll put NSERV with it just as a risk uh, tool because the last couple of years we've had torrential rains. And then I will put um, on the corn planter, on the corn planter I go to starter placement. Uh, so these are all the options. The two by two, blow seed placement, in row pop up, over the row banding, surface dribble, and banding under the row. These are kind of all the accepted practices. And like I said, the University of Minnesota did a bunch of work on it. And they basically came up with the fact that uh, two by zero placement on top of the soil was just as efficient as putting it down below. So think about all the residue management issues and the weight of all those openers and repairs and all that stuff. This system truly does work for me. It may not work for you, you'll have to try it, but um, it works for me. I don't have all that extra equipment on my planter. Now I'm putting on my fertilizer in that two by zero. I'm using three uh, gallons of ammonium thiol sulfate to get my sulfur and some uh, ammonium, and then five gallons of 28%. So that in a 20 inch row is two thirds the rate of a 30 inch row. So if you're in a 30 inch row, you might be able to cut that back a little bit at that time of the year, okay? Then I'm also using a pop-up fertilizer. So, and I've been doing tests now the last two years with running it with and without pop-up and running different rates of, of starter fertilizer on the back. So I change those rates as I go across the field and I'm trying to determine what is the most efficient. I also have a spreadsheet that I wrote that in comparison to dry fertilizer, using this liquid system, I think it costs me about uh, $5 an acre in fertilizer cost. So because I'm using a liquid versus a standard of anhydrous or dry fertilizers, it's about a $5 cost to doing that. Okay, as far as in the row on the case planter, I can't get a tube unless I were to put it on the seed. So I learned this from a farmer in Illinois, and we just took a little piece of uh, quarter inch anhydrous tube and we welded that to the firming point and then we route that a plastic line up along the seed tube and that's how we apply our pop-up fertilizer so it's ending up under the seed. Uh, in the uh, earlier years I had both systems but I always preferred a system that would put it under the seed rather than on the seed. And I and I I am kind of a probably different in that I've never had much success using firmers. Um, I plant maybe a little slower, try to eliminate the bounce in the planter, and I've never really seen any big advantage to firmers, so I never really had a way to put fertilizer on that way. I'm running 103040, and I've tried some other starters, more expensive starters, and never really seen uh, an increase to it. And then off the back of the planter, I'm running these tubes, which we, we made. Um, that's, and that's where we put our, uh, uh, tenth, our, not our, tenth, our urea, 28%, and our ammonium thiol sulfate. But this year, I finally got a self-propelled sprayer. So I'm going to start experimenting with using Y-drops. Uh, scientists that 
work at Minnesota, George Ream and Giles Randall, those two old guys did tons of nitrogen work for 25 years. And they would always say that any kind of urea nitrogen, except at planting, when you usually get a good rainfall, should be injected in the ground or you're just gonna lose too much. So we'll just have to see. The jury to me is still out. I think the biggest benefit they get out of that system is that they've predicted the loss of nitrogen based on the rainfall so that they can at, tell you how much nitrogen to apply. But whether that's a good methodology to put nitrogen on, I'm not sure. Because I've got a couple friends that farm 3,000 acres that have been doing a similar system. They pick up a little yield, but never enough to offset the cost of doing it. They're putting down pre-plant anhydrous, and they've compared using pre-plant anhydrous to using other nitrogen sources. So. A lot of times I'll see a lot of broadcast nitrogen. And think about nitrogen. Nitrogen, the bacteria in the soil have to convert it to nitrate and nitrite to get it to move. So it'll, it'll move. If you put nitrogen in a concentrated band, just like any other fertilizer, it's just not going to move as fast because it takes those, it doesn't, the bacteria don't have near as much access to it. So whenever you broadcast something, you've, accelerated the rate at which it's going to go into soil solution, but you've also accelerated the rate of potential loss because now that nitrogen's in a form that if you get a lot of rain, it can be lost. So that's part of the reason I've used anhydrous over the years. I've tried other systems, but I use it because I can hold on to the nitrogen longer. Now, I'm not saying that's the only right system, but that's why I use it, but that's why I had to go to a system that applied some nitrogen at the planter. And if you look at all the old research studies on putting what you put in a starter fertilizer, nitrogen always comes to the top. And usually, you know, phosphorus and potassium at a lower level. But nitrogen is still the big driver in that, in most cases. Thank you to Jim Leverage for sharing his fertility program and outlining the ways no-tillers can develop their own efficient fertility system. If you'd like to view any of the PowerPoint slides he presented at the conference, go to notillfarmer.com and click on Podcasts under the Resources tab. There you'll find a link to this episode where the presentation will be available. Again, we'd like to recognize and thank our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for helping make this No-Till Farmer podcast series possible. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast to get an alert when future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest No-Till Farming news by registering online for our No-Till Insider and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletters. And be sure to follow us on our No-Till Farmer Facebook page and on Twitter at No-Till Farmer with farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R. For Jim Leverich, Montag Manufacturing, and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Laura Barrera. Thanks for listening.